Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, I wanted to read uh, a verse from the song that we sang a few minutes ago before the throne of God above, and I didn't want to forget the words, so I brought my phone up here with me. Um, the verse says this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Um, that verse has always just been particularly meaningful to me um, and uh, I think has the potential to be meaningful to you as well. There are many times, because we're sinners and continue to sin, that we feel the weight of guilt and shame over sin. Um, but if you are a follower of Christ, if you have trusted him, if you have placed your faith in him and are united with him, then you have eternal life and he is at the right hand of the Father and has paid for your sins. And there is no more guilt. There is no more shame for for anything that you have done, past, present, or future. And so when you feel guilt, and when I feel guilt and shame over sin, the appropriate response is to look up and see him there, and in faith to recognize that he has atoned for all of your sins. And so this whole series on the Gospel of John is just one big attempt to look up and see him there. That's what we're doing. See the Son and believe for eternal life and believe for daily life. Constantly direct your gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want every application of every sermon to be. And that's what I want you and I to learn how to do in our daily lives, to consistently go back to the work that Christ has done on our behalf. And he has atoned for our sins and paid the penalty for them. And we are free and forgiven. And that is a glorious truth. So I'm glad you're here this morning to continue with us on this journey through the Gospel of John. I assume you're already open to chapter 6. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. But before we get there, let's talk about the Bible that you hold in your hand for just a moment here. If you were to flip a few pages back to Matthew chapter 1, you don't have to do that, but you can. Um, if you were to flip back to Matthew chapter 1 and stick your finger in Matthew 1 and divide your Bible between Old Testament and New Testament, you would get about maybe three-quarters, two-thirds to three-quarters of the Bible would be on the left-hand side in the Old Testament. That's the scary part. And a quarter of it would be on the right-hand side in the New Testament. That's the part that we're, we tend to be a little more comfortable with. One of the struggles that people often have in reading the Bible and being interested in the Bible and engaging in the Bible is fitting those two pieces of the Bible together. I mean, so much of it is in the Old Testament, and a lot of it is confusing and from a different time period, and there's stories that we have no idea why they're there, and sometimes it can be a struggle to understand how the two relate. And it seems hard to relate them because they're different in so many ways. I mean, the Old Testament deals with creation, with the flood, with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And ultimately, the bulk of the Old Testament has to do with the nation of Israel. 
getting into the promised land, living in the promised land, and then being exiled from the promised land. And then you turn over to the New Testament, and it feels like it's a totally different storyline in many ways. It talks about the life of Jesus, the spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire, which is totally different than the, uh, the nations that Israel's dealing with in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament predicts the future and the end of all things. And so as, as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, you know that the two pieces go together. I mean, after all, it's one book. It comes together to us. And we know that Jesus is the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we know he's the link because we read things like this in Luke 24, which Jesus is speaking specifically about Jesus. He's on the, the road to Emmaus with these two disciples after the resurrection, and it says this, and beginning with Moses, the first five books, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so clearly Jesus understands the Old Testament to be speaking about him. But we often wonder how. We read all these stories and they don't say his name and we're like, I don't really understand how the two pieces fit together. And I've heard people say about this passage, I wish I could have been there to listen to this explanation from Jesus to these two disciples. Oh man, if somebody would have just written this down. And I've said that myself. I would have loved to have listened to this lecture that happened on this roadway to Emmaus. And so it's clearly important for you and I, as followers of Christ, to understand how the Old Testament speaks about Jesus. When we want to know Jesus, we want to know him better, we want to understand his work, and clearly he thinks the Old Testament is necessary for us to understand his work. And it seems like we could know him better and understand him more if we could just get a handle on the ways in which the Old Testament looks ahead to him. Now, I'll tell you what would be great. It would be great if someone who was close to Jesus, who spent several years with him, listening to him teach, walking with him through the land of Israel, who actually heard him teach about the Old Testament and make connections between the Old Testament and his life and ministry and how it finds its fulfillment in him, I wish there was someone like that who would have written down a history of Jesus's life and emphasized the ways in which the Old Testament speaks about him. That would be fabulous. Thankfully, we have four such accounts from four different men who all write about Jesus and write about clearly how the Old Testament relates to him. They're saturated with teaching from the Old Testament and quotes and allusions to the Old Testament. And consistently, they show us how the Gospels, how the life of Jesus fulfills and is pointed to by the Old Testament. I mean, last week, our study of John 5 ended with these words. Look at verse 45. Jesus, speaking to the Jews, says this, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Jews loved Moses because he was the quintessential deliverer in the Old Testament. He was the guy, right? He gave them the law. He led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to the edge of the promised land. He was the Savior in many ways in the Old Testament. But Jesus makes it quite clear here in John 5 that you don't really get Moses at all. You don't rightly understand him unless you see the ways in which he wrote of Jesus and in which his writings point to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses is the pregame. Jesus is the Super Bowl in my sports world. So this week and next week, we're going to look at John 6, which is going to clearly show us how the writings and the life of Moses and the rest of the Old Testament anticipate and prepare the way for Jesus as the better deliverer, the ultimate savior. And today we're going to look at the passage that Zach read, verses 1 to 21. And in this passage, there are two miracles that we're going to look at. And next week, we're going to get into the the discourse or the teaching, the conversation that Jesus has with the Jews that explain the significance of these miracles, of these signs that he performs here. So here's what I want to show you today, and then we'll get into more next week. But today we're going to look at two ways that Jesus provides a better deliverance and better specifically than than the Old Testament, than Moses, all right? The first one of these is he meets needs with unearned extravagance. He meets needs with unearned extravagance. Look with me at chapter 6 and verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. All right, so keep in mind, in chapter 5, Jesus was having a conversation with the Jews in Jerusalem, right? So south of Galilee, he's in Jerusalem. He has healed the man who was at the pool for 38 years, was lame for 38 years, and who was resting by the pool, trying to get into the pool to get healed. Jesus heals him in an instant and performs a sign there. And then he teaches about his relationship with the Father and why he could do that sign on the Sabbath day. And here, it says that after this, Jesus went away. Well, we don't know how long this would have been, but it would have been some time after the events in Jerusalem in chapter 5. It could have been a few months. It may have been up to a year later. Now, it's significant for you and I, as we read the Gospels, to remember that these writers do not include everything that Jesus does in his earthly life. Why don't they include everything? Well, because it would be a whole lot of material and because they are writing and including the stories that they do and the teaching that they do to make a particular theological point. There's a reason that John skips from the events in Jerusalem all the way ahead here to what happens in chapter 6. There's a reason for this. And I'm convinced that John does this, the feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life discourse that Jesus is going to give in a few minutes, or actually next week we're going to look at that, but in in a few verses here in chapter 6, I'm convinced that he does this here after his words about Moses speaking of him 
because he understands these events to be showing us how Moses talks about Jesus. This whole chapter is going to show us what it looks like for Jesus to be the point, the aim, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But in verse 1, we find that Jesus makes his way from Jerusalem up north to the Sea of Galilee. But he does not head to Cana. Remember in John 2 through 4, he was in, he performed miracles in Cana at the beginning of that section and at the end. Here, he does not go to Cana. Instead, this time, you see there um, in verse, yeah, in verse 1, it says that he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So this is talking about the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This was the section that was less Jewish. More Jews lived on the western shore. This is the other side. But as he goes there, he's not alone. Look at verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now notice the motivation of this crowd. We have seen this before. Some of these people may have even been following him since Jerusalem. They may have been following him for up to a year, looking for him to perform more signs, to heal more sick people. They may have seen signs that he's done in the interim during this up to a year time frame when he ended up on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Who knows? But the point is they've seen him do signs and now they're interested in seeing more of that. This reminds us of chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, when Jesus was doing signs and the people saw it in Jerusalem. Look at verse 23, just a couple of pages back. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, verse 24, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, he knew that these people ultimately were not having true faith in him. Their faith, their belief in him was very shallow. They saw the miracles and they liked it. and They wanted to see more miracles. It was a curious interest in the miracles that they were putting on display. And so because of this crowd, back in chapter 6, Jesus attempts to get away with his disciples. Look at verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And so as all of this is happening there, John is sort of setting, uh, giving us the setting for what's about to take place, the miracle that's about to take place. John wants to make sure that you and I read this miracle correctly. And he's going to do that with verse 4. Look there with me. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This is significant. There's a reason that John makes sure that we understand this right at the beginning of chapter 6. John's gospel mentions at least three Passovers in the ministry of Jesus. And he here clearly wants us to connect the ministry of Jesus and the miracle that he does here to the Passover. And John, in his whole book, wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that happened 
in Passover in the book of Exodus and of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. I mean, remember what John the Baptist called Jesus in John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, referencing the Passover lamb. The death of Jesus happens the week of Passover, and he's presented there as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb in John 19.36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is talking about the expectation that you couldn't break the bones of the Passover lamb when you were uh, celebrating Passover and preparing for it. And so with this mention in verse 4 of chapter 6, you and I are to read the rest of chapter 6 in light of the Exodus story, of the salvation that God brings to Israel there. We are to read this always going back to that and connecting the two together. There's going to be many more connections throughout this this chapter. But if you look at verses 5 and 6, now the setting is there. The theological significance of this is there, connecting it back to the Passover in the Old Testament. And now the story really gets going in verse 5. Look there. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, they found him on the mountain, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, since we're already thinking in terms of Moses, of the Passover, of the Exodus story, keep in mind the situation that Israel found herself in after they went through the Red Sea. What happened? They were in the wilderness with nothing to eat. And Jesus' question here in verse 5 to Philip sounds very much like what Moses asks God in the book of Numbers in the wilderness. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? It's a very similar question. Now, Jesus here is asking not because he really wants to figure out what to do. He already knows what he's going to do. But he's asking here because he wants Philip to consider the options that are available. And he wants Philip to consider the options that are available in light of the way that God provided for Israel in the Old Testament, right? So Jesus is asking Philip this and framing it in the same way that Moses asks this question. So hopefully Philip will think, oh yeah, God provided for his people to eat in the wilderness and he will do that again through Jesus here. In fact, there's a, there's a psalm that references God's provision. Talking about Israel, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Now, Here, Israel's asking this question in a sinful way with doubt and suspicion, but I think Jesus is posing this question here to provoke us to ask this, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Is this the sort of thing that he does to provide for his people? Is God the type of God who is stingy 
who is grumpy, or is he the type of God who consistently and lavishly provides for his people? And at the moment, when he asks Philip this, Philip and the other disciples cannot get around the size of the problem. They're not understanding why Jesus is asking this yet. Sorry, we'll get back to that in a minute. Look at verses 7 through 9. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so the disciples can't get around the size of the problem, but of course Jesus is prepared and already knows exactly what he's going to do. Look at verses 10 through 12 here. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Now, obviously, a remarkable and familiar miracle. This is the only miracle that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. But this is not the first time in the Bible that something like this has happened. And I'm not talking about the other Gospel stories. I want you to listen to a story from 2 Kings chapter 4 that is remarkably similar to this. And this story from 2 Kings 4 involves Elisha the prophet. There are several things that tie these two stories together, and I want you to note these as I read through this short passage in 2 Kings, okay? There's the mention of barley loaves that ties them together. There's the multiplication of food. There's not enough food, but it's multiplied miraculously to feed more people than it should have. And there's a specific mention of some food left over. There's even the same Greek word is used to talk about Elisha's servant as the boy here who has the Greek loaves, or the Greek loaves, the the loaves of barley. Maybe they were Greek loaves, I don't know. But either way, It's the same word. So there's lots of tie-ins, and John wants us to see both of these miracles connected together. Let me read this to you. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, remarkably similar to the disciples, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now, why this connection? Why draw your attention to this? Well, obviously, Elisha is one of the most significant prophets in the Old Testament. And Jesus here performs a miracle that is similar, but on a much grander scale. Look at verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. It certainly is not coincidental that there are 12 baskets left over. It's not an accident that that's the number. 
12 tribes of Israel. And I think the clear implication here is that God provides for Israel, for all of Israel, with abundance. He meets their needs specifically and then goes beyond their needs. Notice the language in verse 11. Look there again. We read this earlier, but I want to go back to it. He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten, they had leftovers, and they gathered them all up, right? Let's consider here for a second the implications of God's provision here for his people. The question was raised earlier by Jesus, how will the needs of these people be met? How's this going to happen? And the answer is given without qualification here. God is the type of God who provides lavishly for the needs of his people. This is what he does. This is who he is. He's not stingy. He provides lavishly for what we need. And this is one of the sure signs of the messianic kingdom. This is what you and I have to expect in the future. A few passages. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, talking about the messianic kingdom, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. God is not cheap in his provision for his people. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We will experience and enjoy the happiness of God for all eternity as we know him and see him as he is. Psalm 36, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of life in your light do we see light. Over and over again, the consistent testimony of Scripture is that God gives and gives above and beyond what we deserve. Because we don't deserve anything. But in His grace, He is not sparing. This is the type of God that He is. He is overflowing in His provision for His people. But of course... This miracle is not ultimately about the food, is it? And it's not about you and I filling our bellies one day in the Messianic kingdom, although that will be nice. And I think there'll be wonderful food to enjoy at his table. But if you look in verse 14, this is called a sign, right? And what do we know about a sign? A sign points beyond itself to a deeper truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the deeper truth here? We'll look down, and we'll get to this next week, to John 6, 35. What does Jesus say? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look at verse 40. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This miracle is not about the food. This miracle is about God's provision for eternal life. And His provision for eternal life, the opportunity to have our sins completely wiped away and forgiven and to be raised up bodily on the last day is extravagant and beyond measure. He gives in His grace and He gives and that is the type of God He is. He gives His only Son. What better gift could He give? And He gives His only Son for our lives and He gives us salvation and then He piles spiritual blessings on top of eternal salvation. So here's my question for you this morning. When you think about God, when I think about God, do you view God as a cheapskate? Is He a Scrooge? Is He a miser? Is he always dangling good things in front of you and he just enjoys pulling them out of the way? That's not the type of God that we have presented to us in Scripture at all. Sometimes we don't know what is best for us, but God always gives to his children what they need and he does it with extravagance, even when we don't recognize it. One author put it like this. Those who go to God to get their needs met will not find him stingy. God will give as much as is wanted of what we need. This does not mean we will have everything we want according to sinful desire, but it does mean that God will meet the needs of his people. Christ is enough and more to satisfy forever and always. But clearly the crowds don't get this. Look at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They understand that something significant has happened, right? It's hard not to in this situation. They like the miracle. But what does verse 14 say? They say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, right? So somebody may have made the connection with Elisha. This is a prophetic sort of act that Jesus is doing here. But ultimately, what they're referencing is Deuteronomy 18. And here's the promise that God makes through Moses to his people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses says this, among you, from your brothers, It is to him you shall listen. And then later, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so they're probably thinking about this in some way. Too bad they don't listen to the last part of this and listen to Jesus's words later in this chapter. But even if they're having some recognition that this is a prophet, this is a significant man, their view of him is still skewed. I mean, look at verse 15 again. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. We've already seen that they are merely interested in the miracle. That's what they want. 
Now they have someone who can feed them with abundance out of a very small amount. They don't like Roman rule over them. And so a crowd this size could easily get so excited and raise the energy level to a fever pitch that they go and grab Jesus and march on you know, the, the Romans that are ruling over them and try to create a government of their own with Jesus at the center. And obviously Jesus is not interested in this, and that is not the way he becomes the bread of life. That's not the way that you and I have the opportunity to eat of his body and drink of his blood, as he will talk about later in chapter 6. And so he gets out of there. Jesus withdrew, the end of verse 15, again to the mountain by himself. This leads us to our second miracle and our second way that Jesus provides a better deliverance. He rules creation with divine omnipotence. Look at verses 16 and 17. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they're headed back across to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, where they're comfortable and much more familiar, the Jewish side, but Jesus is not with them. Look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Not a great situation to be in. I'm fascinated by boats. I think they're awesome. I think they're amazing that people can go out and navigate the ocean on a boat. It's a wonderful thing, but this is not a good situation to be in, and I would have no idea what to do here. It's dark, it's rough, there's a strong wind coming, and they are seasoned fishermen and yet are struggling with this. Look at verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles... They're struggling with this, and when they get to the middle of the sea, perhaps something unusual happens. Look at the rest of verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Some people have tried to argue that they were actually close to the shore, and Jesus was walking along the shore, and the disciples saw him there and thought he was walking on the water. Not so much. It's not what happens here. It was dark. They would not have been frightened by a man who was walking on the shore as they're close to the shore. They could not have seen him if he was on the shore and they were in the water. And it specifically says here that he was walking on the sea. Notice what Jesus says to them in verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, I know in English this is written, it is I, and you could translate it that way, but you could also read this to say, I am. In Greek, that's what Jesus says to them. I am. I love verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I have no idea what that means. Some sort of Star Trek transporter miracle, teleporting, I don't know. Clearly, something like that happened here. They get to land immediately, and they're on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. But let's talk about what's going on here for a minute, all right? 
in Scripture, the sea, the ocean, water, is a place of chaos and death. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. What do we find in the first moments of creation in Genesis chapter 1? We find a sea that is in chaos. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's lacking coherence, and the sea or the ocean is tied to chaos. One of the things that happens in Genesis 1 is that God brings order out of disorder. His spirit hovers over the chaos and the disorder, and then the moments of creation are he puts things in order. The first three days, he does the canvas on which the last three days will fill it out with the details. The sea is uncontrollable by human beings. On our flight to California a few weeks ago with my family, you know, you have those little TVs on Delta in front of you, which are wonderful things, especially when you have kids flying with you. And I took a few moments to watch a documentary about surfers who are trying to find and surf a 100-foot wave. Fascinating. Totally sucked in. Fascinating and terrifying. And it's terrifying because even though these guys are trying to ride the wave, they know ultimately they cannot control the ocean. They have no ability to do it. They cannot create a 100-foot wave, and they cannot cause one to go away. When they get out there, they are at the ocean's mercy. And yet, over and over again in the Old Testament, what do we find? We find God as the sovereign ruler of the oceans and the waters. Listen to Job 38. I'll show you a couple of these. There's tons of them. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, God speaking to the ocean, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Psalm 107. I know that's a lot of text. Let me read it to you. Speaking of God's deliverance of his people and bringing them back to the land, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Describing his people on a boat, they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then notice this next verse. Some people think this verse is fulfilled in what happens here in John 6. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, just like the disciples were glad to bring Jesus into the boat, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. But in the Old Testament, God doesn't just control the seas. We find something else about what God does with the oceans in the Old Testament. I want you to just look for sake of time at the last verse of this, verse 8. Who, speaking of God, alone stretched out the heavens 
and trampled the waves of the sea. What is this describing? God tramples the waves of the sea. He, God, walks on the waters. Only God does this. Listen to Psalm 77. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This passage presents God as walking through the Red Sea in front of his people and not leaving footprints behind. It clearly connects back to the Exodus, but at the same time, I think there's every reason to believe that John writes this story here and draws attention to Jesus walking on the water because Jesus is in the process of leading his people through to deliverance in a way that is greater than he did in the Exodus story. And of course, all of these Old Testament passages go together with what Jesus says here when he, the disciples see him walking on the water in verse 20. But he said to them, I am. And of course, that matches quite well with God's revelation of himself in Exodus 34 and with what John has told us in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same God who controls all of creation, even the raging sea, to the point where he just takes a leisurely stroll on it. That is the God who has all of that power, who provides lavishly for our spiritual needs. And so here's what I would ask you today. What need do you have? What struggle are you facing? What sin area is there in your life? God, in his omnipotence and his divine power, provides all that you and I need through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and his grace and his provision for us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for our time together in this passage this morning and these two miracles. I pray that you would encourage our hearts with this, challenge us, Build us up. Help us to be people who see your lavish goodness and who trust in you because of your omnipotence and your power and your rule. We thank you for all you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.